0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Zach Stein, educator, futurist, and writer of books such as Education in a Time Between Worlds and Social Justice and Educational Measurement. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Good hey, thank you. you. Zach, when you're at a, uh, an event or you meet somebody and you're really interested in, um, in them having a sense of, of who you are, uh, and they ask, what do you do? Uh, how do you answer that question? <laughs>
1: uh, I usually say something like, I'm an educational philosopher. Uh, that, that's usually my answer. And then because everyone's
0: been to school, it's pretty easy to get into a conversation about schools and schooling. Cool. So we're going to spend, uh, nearly a couple hours going really deep on a bunch of different topics, but I'm curious in the beginning to give people sort of a, uh, a lay of the land as some of your, your biggest, uh, biggest ideas. And know, some that come to mind are sort of, I, I, you spoke about the, the, the meta crisis, uh, How you speak about sort of metrics for, for human consciousness consciousness, sort of love as a ontological truth. I'm, I'm curious if, if people could take away any of sort of some of the big ideas from from your work. What are you most interested in, in people taking away or, or, or going deeper on? Let's sort of give people a high level of land, land, land and we'll go deeper.
1: Yeah, I, I think that at the highest level, what I'm concerned with is the human, the nature of the human. You know, my my training is in psychology and I say I'm an educational philosopher because when you're, when you're looking at psychology, you're looking at the total ecosystem around the human and you end up realizing that learning is this ubiquitous property of human behavior where actually it's hard to not be learning for better and for worse. <laughs> uh, and so the result of that is that uh, we need to view all of our institutions as educational or at least having as educational affordances. So as soon as you see that and then you realize that we're likely in a civilization that is going through massive transformations, some of which look like collapse, some of which look like potential regeneration. And so, although learning is everywhere, and in a sense, education is everywhere, schools are in specific places, and schools are actually kind of in dire straits. And so, my second book, Education in a Time Between Worlds, The kind of elevator pitch that I give to kind of aggravate people is I say that I'm uh, trying to take the schools apart, that the schools are like kind of like dinosaurs that were invented maybe a century ago. Um, And as much as we try to tinker with and save the schools, if it is the case that civilization is in a major transformation, then education is the solution, but not necessarily schools as we have known them. So I'm arguing for a very radical rethinking of
0: schools and schoolings in the name of education. So uh, before we get to that, why don't we even zoom out more and talk about some of the great transformations or crises that, that we are facing, and then we'll, we'll zoom back in for school. Yeah, so
1: I'm, ho- I'm honing in on this educational crisis, which is the focus of my book, which is another way to think about it is as, is as a legitimation crisis which is that the structures, uh, institutions, inf- infrastructures, especially schools, have fallen out of favor. They don't have our legitimacy. They seem to be like a sham. This is happening. Uh, and then it's also a capabilities crisis, which is to say, on top of that, on top of the fact that we're kind of seeing through some of the systemic elements into the dysfunction of the civilizational architecture, we're also unable to solve problems. Because the schools have been failing and the the social media and other forms of kind of total information saturation have disequilibrated us so that we're actually not as capacitated as we need to be to solve the very real problems that we're seeing once we see through the kind of facade, which has been obviously coming apart. And so that's a broad educational crisis, which is not just a crisis of meaning, although it is in fact a crisis of meaning, which slides into a mental health crisis. It's also a crisis of capability and legitimacy. And so that means that a lot of what we'd like to accomplish in the schools will be very hard to accomplish in the schools precisely because it's a school. And we need to think about promoting education outside of traditional schooling contexts. Uh, And so there's huge educational frontier opening up as the wheels come off the Mm -hmm. basic structures that have characterized modernity for quite a while.
0: Do do you find education between worlds sort of interesting? I I could also interpret it like we're solving the education crisis in between these other crises. How do those are there any that you're particularly uh, focused on in terms of how it intersects with the education crisis? Well, I'm saying that the education crisis is the meta-crisis. Is the meta Right. It appears
1: to be like a technological crisis that actually, or an ecological crisis. Uh, but both those are tied up in human capability, human framework, human sense making, and a lot of human ego and human emotion. So although I'm not denying the massively complex scientific and technical problems that characterize this civilizational transition, uh, I am saying that we need to look at the human first and foundationally that all knowledge comes from the human. (laughs) And so if we have pathological, deeply confused, uh, ostensibly illiterate forms of human making and being, uh, it's going to fall short of what we need to actually solve the technical problems. (laughs) So unless we kind of, it's it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing, but in fact, I do think we need to kind of get education going first if we have any hope of resolving the ostensibly technical slash ecological things that are cascading in upon the life world. But first, we need to figure out what's going on with us in our homes, in our heads, uh, and in what used to be these schools, which I'm saying, saying. not quite, they're schools, of course, but they're not
0: serving the social function they need to. So before focusing on uh, education frontier and and what to do next, let's focus a bit uh, on the past why have uh, schools failed us? Uh, Maybe what's, you know, underappreciated about how how they failed us and did they serve us at one point and then became outdated or was it sort of inevitable? Yeah. I mean, so you have to really have to look at the history in a quite complex way.
1: And of course there were most of human history, the vast, vast majority of human history. uh, There were not schools the way that we know them, (laughs) you know, schools, the way they know, we know them are, very recent invention of the nation state in particular. Um, Before that, we had schools mostly associated with religions and then philosophical uh, traditions um, and uh, scribal necessities Mm -hmm. around the early civilizations. Uh, Of course, pre-civilization, you had education, a lot of education. That's one of the things that characterizes humans, but not schools. When you get the nation state and the emergence of the school, especially the public school, you begin to see a series of patterns that the great German social theorist Jürgen Habermas would talk about as the dialectic of enlightenment. So the dialectic of enlightenment is that every time you solve one problem, it's, it's fantastic. You've solved that problem. But precisely by virtue of solving the problem, you have created a whole new set of problems that were actually unanticipated and wouldn't even have existed in the world prior to that problem being solved. (laughs) And so the public schools are failing us now precisely because they succeeded so well. And many of the basic structures that we were trying to achieve with the nation state and the forms of capitalism that were intertwined with it. uh, After 1972, there was a massive kind of success (laughs) with the linking between the educational system and the economy and a few other things. Um, and it was that success that led to the limits of growth and a few other dynamics that have now run modernity's very logic back against itself, right? Science itself, through the perfection of our measurement infrastructures, has revealed to us the meta-modern hyperobjects, which can't be understood. They're so goddamn complex. <laughs> Millions of sensors, massively you know, dynamical systems over long stretches of time. And so, again, it's through the dialectic Dialectic of enlightenment that we solve one problem only to reveal a set of more problems. This is true in individual development too. And it's good news, which is to say, in early periods of your life, <coughs> you resolve basic problems only to step into more
0: maturity and then take on larger, more complex problems. Can, can you briefly describe, just because listeners may not be familiar, the transformation between postmodernity to meta modernity? Because as far as I understand, this is, is an idea that's been growing, but is it? isn't totally understood or or widely accepted, perhaps. Uh, Well, that's interesting. I do think
1: that the move from pre-modernity to modernity is pretty widely accepted, although you could argue with that. (laughs) And there are certainly people who who do, because that narrative is part of a particular way of understanding uh, Western civilization. Um, From the perspective of colonized countries, it looks a little bit different. Um, That said, that's a general agreement. The move from modernity to post-modernity is also, I think, generally, except that there's a couple of canonical you know, moments in the history of thought that revealed the difference. And some of this is tied into the basic media, which is to say the forms of the, how culture is physically instantiated and trafficked in, right? So this is Marshall McLuhan. So the move from the pre-modern to the modern, you can think of the move from scribal into text, right? The Gutenberg revolution. Uh, modernity was built upon books. The move into postmodernity had to do with the move up and into digital. And the solidification and kind of like climax or apocalypse of the digital global sphere is this moment of metamodernity, which I say is a time between worlds, that there's only so many prefixes we can put on modernity before we're truly in something novel and unprecedented. Uh, and so when I say that we're looking at a civilization where there are Radical dynamics happening. Some of them which look like collapse. Some of which look like regeneration. This is the point. Metamodernity is this point in between, and there is something on the other side. And getting there is an educational challenge.
0: What What's the criteria that determines whether something is going to collapse versus regenerate, uh, or, or do you have any, in, you know, thoughts on which is which, or or, or another way? What comes after metamodernity, in, in your view? <laughs>
1: I mean, this is obviously highly speculative, right? This is, uh, you know, I postulate a set of, let's take a step back. When you look at complex dynamical systems, and this is across a few different fields, so like the work coming out of Santa Fe Institute and other places, but also when you look at individual humans, there are people who apply dynamical systems models to look at humans like ecosystems so that my development and learning looks like these nonlinear dynamical patterns, so what happens here is that whenever there's an ecosystem that's about to change in a massive way because there's a limit on a certain kind of flow or the inability to put out from a certain tap, right? Something's not working with the way it normally works. Uh, it will go through a period of chaos. And during the chaos period, as uh, is called kind of the lead up to a catastrophic bifurcation, it's not clear what's going to happen. All you know is that you can't stay the way you were. And so it's precisely a crisis in a technical structural sense that there's either a major change or there's a breakdown to a prior level of stability. And, you know, this is a pattern that we've seen in prior civilizational dynamics. And, you know, my close colleague, Daniel Schmachtenberger, speaks to this uh, more articulately than I. But it's it's pretty clear that no prior civilizations (laughs) have made it. Uh, And we are, in fact, looking at some of the same types of dynamics. And those dynamics include broad educational crises, crises of both capability, the inability to solve the problems that constitute the civilizationals, kind of the civilizational problematique, like you can't capacitate, you're not capacitated enough to deal with it, Uh, and that sense of legitimacy that this thing's not working and uh, it's actually not good anymore. Yeah. So, both of those are characterizing the culture of late capitalism or postmodernity or early metamodernity. Um, and so it's a radical fragmentation, often sliding into a nihilism, whereas metamodernity begins to re articulate the fragmentation and weave together a more kind of, quote, holistic story. So, if postmodernity is a kind of a-perspectival madness, where anything goes and it's not clear which perspective is right. So then you retreat to power because reason doesn't work. So then all you have is power, which would be like resorting to force or the legal system uh, or other forms of coercion, such as scapegoating and things of that nature because reason is not functioning, but you can move beyond the a perspectival into a multi-perspectival or trans-perspectival, which allows you to operate on it, (laughs) which is to say to sort the perspectives categorize them, to list them, to work with them from different normative perspectives, where you can show that in some cases, one perspective is right, these perspectives are not. In other cases, actually, yes, this perspective is right, that perspective is wrong. So contextually holding truth claims, which requires a form of engagement and education in the person to hold discourse at that level of complexity. So some of what we're seeing is the need for an up-leveling of conversation and that is what I mean by educational crisis. In fact, that
0: we can't even really speak in a serious way anymore about some topics. Is metamodernity any more temporary than any other? Or is it temporary in the same way that every sort of movement is somewhat temporary? Or is there something that makes it uniquely temporary or not you know, sustainable?
1: I mean, again, we can't get too hung up, I think, on the word metamodernity. But what I prefer this time between worlds. And if you think about it that way, then yes, it is a liminal time.
0: By definition, it's a liminal time, which is precisely why schools need to be rethought. And, and you were just saying that there's some things that we can't even have a conversation about anymore. What comes to mind when, when we say that? I guess what I mean is that,
1: and again, back to McLuhan and thinking about the nature of how we encode our culture um, and how we traffic in our, with our memes and, and words. Uh, and so what comes to mind for that is, is most things. That, in fact, when you look at the uh, informational ecosystem in which people spend their time, particularly in front of screens, what you're seeing is a, a pretty systematically distorted informational ecosystem in which many of the traditional norms of conversation that have characterized civilized humans have broken down or are breaking down and uh, where it's hard to disentangle a whole bunch of other incentives aside from just earnest discussion that's an undermining and again it's part of the legitimacy crisis there's a questioning of whether or not reason is even worth uh worrying about because we can resort to force especially when you're looking at radical economic inequality which has asymmetric power for some and and it's the obverse for others so that uh so some of what metamodernity is an attempt to do in this time between worlds is to bring a certain level, kind of sanity to the culture. And that involves uh, several things. So, but, but again, metamodernity is just a, a group, a particular group of theorists and particularly political thinkers who've just wanted to kind of name the issue that we're actually, and postmodernity is over. We can't just be... Relativistic, and we can't just be resorting to power trumping truth. That we actually need to integrate the best of modernity and postmodernity into some new form of conversation or discourse, which would be multi perspectival, integral, holistic, um, and uh, hopefully more earnest the kind of sincere irony about
0: the hyper objects that confront us, including ourselves. And, and you write quite a bit about this in the, uh, the- education between time and two worlds, but how would you define uh, integral for someone who uh, isn't familiar with, 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 the term or the movement behind it?
1: Yeah. I mean, so when I use the term integral, I'm specifically working from a body of theoretical work um, developed by an American philosopher named Ken Wilber. Um, and it's been developed over a number of decades. There are a couple academic departments and journals devoted to it. Uh, think tanks, Conferences, it was interfaced with critical realism, which was another, I would say, integral meta theory. And so I, I work with integral theory by name and uh, support it with several other large meta theories. And the nature of these meta theories is that they are, in a meta modern way, trying to say, hey, that's a perspective on truth from that discipline. Oh, no, that's an interesting, different perspective on the same truth from that discipline. Let's take four or five different disciplines on the same issue, like let's say learning in schools or the lack thereof <laughs> and look at it from sociological psychological cultural and biophysical perspective um, and so that notion that taking an omni considered view of any issues necessary and we're at a point in knowledge production when we can actually move across disciplines and should be um, addressing every problem uh, and so Ken Wilber developed meta theory uh, and several other Kind of groups and individuals have comparable theories, and the issue is how to instantiate them and how to get them out. So, I, I'm trying to bring that form of an integral meta theory to bear on problems of education. Um, and uh, that means I look at education from many different viewpoints, including the idea of abandoning the form of schooling <laughs> and getting into something that's that's different, that's different. and yeah. to do that, you need to not just simply look at Education from one view, like learning, or as is typically done, the economy. Uh, you need to look at the, the multitude of issues um, in it and then be able to not just say, well, each one is equally correct, but to be able to organize them uh, in terms of a basic ontology. So, Ken Wilber is one among many, um, and metamodernism and integral have been. Uh, interesting kind of bedfellows for the past maybe decade.
0: And so we were, one of the things we said earlier is that schooling is giving us so much trouble now because in the past it worked so well. And so I'm curious, uh, you know, paradigms that served us well that, that no longer serve us and what are some potential, re, re, you know, replacement paradigms. And, and that's sort of another way of asking, uh, let's get into some of the education frontier. What are some principles that you think will, will, are informing that frontier, should inform that frontier? What, what is our sort of dream or utopia uh, or desires there? You
1: know, the, In the book, I lay out several different kind of schemes for thinking about educational futures. And some of it is what I call concrete utopian theorizing, which is also sometimes called design fiction. Um, and the idea here is to do a certain kind of speculative theorizing in a principled way. And to think about uh, something like an educational future in ways not constrained by contemporary discourse. Um, So that's one answer to your question would be, well, shit, if we can move currency around in a different way, if we can assure a basic income and healthcare, if we can change the nature of material economies so that we're not enslaving people, (laughs) if other things move, Then the educational problem becomes very different. You know, so for example, if we look at automation and we look at the future of jobs, it's reasonable to think that there will be increasing unemployment due to automation. And there's many, of course, intricacies in this argument. And I'm not going to get into that, but let's take that as an assumption. (laughs) That many jobs, even pretty sophisticated, quote, white-collar jobs, are going to start disappearing. And we're either going to have to invent new jobs, or we're going to have to find something for people to do that is not a wage labor, strictly speaking. Um, and that's a massive educational challenge, even though it appears like an economic challenge. Like how do we distribute basic income if there's 70% unemployment due to AI or something like that. But in fact, it's a reconception of how a human life ought to be spent, you know? So just like schools are a relatively recent invention, wage labor is a relatively recent invention. (laughs) Uh, And for the vast majority of human history, there was currency and there was things that looked a little bit like employment, but it wasn't what we know as wage labor. And so with rethinking a basic category like wage labor allows us to start rethinking a basic structure like education. And uh, you can go around (laughs) and around. So for example, were we to radically de-escalate geopolitical violence, were there to be a serious peace movement and a gradual demilitarization, that would change the nature of schools dynamically. And you wouldn't even have to be a sophisticated educator (laughs) to see the relationships between armies and and schools. Um, So what I'm doing here is kind of doing what I typically do when when people ask me, like, what's the perfect school? I typically actually avoid that question <laughs> and say, well, that, you know, focusing on the schools is missing the educational impact of all social structure, that uh, labor law is educational insofar as parents can't get home, that enforced, legally enforced, uh, schooling, of course, is obviously educational, um, but limits on the age of when people can work is educational We can look at schools and we can look at what's wrong with them specifically. And I've done that in in my books and in my first book in particular, I hone very carefully on standardized testing. And and so that's one way to go. But we can also think about what are the other things in the social system that people who aren't technically educators are tinkering with (laughs) that are having a massive impact on human capacity development and cultural transmission and things of that nature. And so obviously the internet would be, and the media and the entertainment industries um, would be primary. Um, And the healthcare industries, instead of thinking about specifically about schools, uh, we need to think about the limits on what schools can do because of the surrounding social systems.
0: Um, and uh, we'll get to t- testing in a bit because I' have some questions there but you know one sort of response and this is within the sort of you know wage labor you know mindset is uh that people will have to become more entrepreneurial in, a, in in a new economy but that we're actually wired to be more entrepreneurial and schooling of the past you know hundred plus years has has made us less uh, less entrepreneurial uh, and then there's there's another somewhat ma- mainstream view that says oh uh, if if it really works, you know, people will be able to just be artists, you know, and not, ha- not have to be as, as entrepreneurial. Sorry, what would you try to add or edit to that conversation? So we have a more holistic version of what we should be educating our pe- people to be able to do. As I've been saying, like civilization is a moving target. Now civilization is not
1: a reliable thing. That's going to be the way it is 20 years from now, like today and 20 years, say 50, 20 20 to 50 years from now will be so radically different from the perspective of the basic infrastructures of our quote civilization that conceptions like running the algorithm of, okay, we need entrepreneurs is not, it's not the right way to think about the kind of ecological and omniconsiderate awareness the next two generations are going to need to have in order to just simply survive. And so I do like the idea that people need to become much more sovereign. I do like that idea. And that sometimes is what people mean when they mean entrepreneurial. But if the idea is to build a successful business the way a successful business is built now, then actually the better and faster and bigger entrepreneurs we get, the more quickly the... (laughs) wheels will come off and we will exhaust resources um, and inequ- inequitably distribute wealth and et cetera. So I would say we do need some radical thinking and some nonconformists and some sovereignty um, and some very real and omni-considerate situational awareness to be radically distributed throughout the population. Whether that looks like entrepreneurship, I think is, is questionable. <laughs> it could look like some other new social category. That we're not uh, familiar with yet.
0: There's this book, Sovereign Individual, and sort of a, you know, uh, branch philosophy uh, is stemming from it that people have largely in, in the crypto sphere. Where when they when they talk about sovereignty, they mostly talk about it in in the context of governments. Sovereignty from gov- separation of money and state, and the ability, you know, not to be tracked, et cetera. The ability to start new governments, you know, the Charter City movement. And yeah, freedom from coercion, typically from from governments, but also from big corporations too. Uh, are you familiar with how that group of people, I'm lightly familiar, it talks about sovereignty and I'm curious when you talk about sovereignty, where does it differ from how that group talks about it?
1: Totally. I mean, there's overlaps. I'm working from something like Jordan Greenhall or Jordan Hall's work and working from a psychological definition of sovereignty and using it basically as a replacement for kind of a Jungian conception of individuation or a Maslavian conception of self-actualization. And so in that respect, uh, it would be wonderful to give everyone political sovereignty were everyone psychologically sovereign. But if everyone is not psychologically sovereign in that sense of the Maslavian (laughs) self-actualized, let alone self-transcending, then we end up granting a tremendous amount of rights to people without con- compensatory responsibility. So there's an and again all political theory ends up coming down to educational questions about what the nature of the human is. And so yes, you know the issue in political theory is sovereignty. It used to be god granted the king <laughs> was sovereign. Um, and now the people are and so the idea that the single indiv- the people meaning the collective so the idea that you could bring it down to the individual has always been one of the key notions in modernity. But what you see when you look at psychologically sovereign people, whether or not they're politically empowered to be technically sovereign, which would include the ability to take life, just so we're clear. When you look at psychologically sovereign people who are, you know, Maslowian, self-actualized, post-conventional, in the Kohlbergian sense, um, you end up having a kind of autonomy that is wedded to communion And the locus of identity from which and for which one acts is not the quote ego or self or individual proper name. It is actually a a broader group and often includes things like all sentient beings or all human beings. Um, So I'm very comfortable with pure anarchy or a form of radical uh, political sovereignty If we can assure an educational system that gets the vast majority of people to psychological sovereignty. But if we don't do that, and then we have, say, let's say a small number of psychologically sovereign people um, in a context where they are empowered to then dominate the rest who then through their heteronomy, lack of autonomy, lack of sovereignty, are through the very legal structure, have the ability to choose to give themselves over to be slaves, right? So again, until we solve some basic educational problems and are able to assure a certain level of basic human maturity, many political schemes are obviously utopian. And I would say surviving this civilizational collapse is probably unlikely unless we find a way to solve some of these issues having to do again with that form of psychological sovereignty or radical maturity.
0: Uh, unpack what you mean when you say uh, when you say slaves. You mean literally that. And this maybe gets to what you mean for sovereignty, because maybe it might seem uh, it might not seem like slavery to others who have a different conception of, of slavery. But maybe it is actually. Some, I'm curious how, how you view that word. I mean, it's very complicated. I didn't mean to kind of open that bag of worms. Oh, sure. <laughs> one of the things that
1: you know, modernity has its dignities and modernity has its disasters. But one of the dignities of modernity is the abolition of legal slavery. Uh, And some of that has to do with putting the collective sovereignty in a sense ahead of individual sovereignty. Um, So that even if you wanted to own slaves and could find people willing to technically be slaves under contract, you're not allowed to. Now, interestingly, there are special economic zones um, in certain places in Africa and Jamaica and elsewhere where contracts look an awful lot like slavery. Um, and those special economic zones are run on uh, the kind of pure logic of the market, um, which is a different way of thinking about what political sovereignty looks like when we don't have psychological sovereignty um, within it.
0: So you we were talking about earlier, what sort of the nature of a, of a human is and the, you know, I'm lightly familiar with some of the, um, you know, mainstream ph- philosophical interpretations of, of that. Over time, there's the Hobbes, you know, state of war view that you know um, the natural state is um, you know chaos and, and civilization uh, you know civilizes uh, people. And then there's sort of the, the Rousseau, other extreme view, you know, the noble savage and civilization corrupts. There's Locke, but the Locke may be somewhere in the middle. If you uh, how how would you re recontextualize that that conversation, um, if you could? what's your take totally i mean that's actually you know a massive uh question It's basically what's the meaning of life is that (laughs)
1: that question and no you're right i mean what's interesting is that most for most of human history cultures have had very clear answers to this question what is a human very clear answers um explicit articulate uh for a very brief period of time coinciding with schooling coinciding with wage labor coinciding with the basic generator functions of our known civilization uh, you got a breakdown and fragmentation in the answer to the question what is the human so that for the first time again part of the educational crisis uh, is a species-wide identity crisis and some of what looks like religious fundamentalism is in fact a reaction to the overwhelming sense coming from the leading edge of Western culture uh, that we don't know what the human is. Um, uh, and uh, it, there's many ways to, to look at that, but the, the simplest one is this issue of all. Well, okay. So all of evolution is competitive, right? All of evolution would have us play zero sum games against one another where the biggest predator wins and has the right to do whatever it wants. You could argue, well, that's actually how evolution tells us, right? You could take the Kropotkin view. You could move up an alternative evolutionary theory, and I would kind of do that. I'd like to do that. (laughs) Uh, But if you look at what's actually being said, Dawkins, or you watch Netflix and you watch a David Attenborough documentary, what you see is a particular reading of nature in which we must include ourselves. And it is a ruthless nature. And uh, it does not provide answers to many of the questions that humans ask, which have been answered since time immemorial about, well, what's the meaning of my life? What is death?
0: Can you unpack Uh, that alternative view that you're intrigued by? uh,
1: Well, yeah. So one of the novel things about Metamodernity is that we have a view back both through this vast expanse of cultural history with novel archaeology and A really kind of deep sense of human history which expands back into the deepest ever conceived notion of biological history and then that pushes back through these time scales that are presented to us by physics where we're looking at a kind of big history for the first time available to us chronologically laid out on one timeline (laughs) where humanity has kind of grown out of or popped out of this massive evolutionary trajectory of deep time history which includes huge expanses of time in which uh, there was ostensibly just matter. uh, And then very large expanses of time on earth where there was simply plant life or low level biological organisms. And so you start to see the sweep of the evolutionary story. And one way to view it again is as matter in motion that began with like a oops moment, like a who knows why that happened moment. Oops. (laughs) <laughs> and then, oh, randomly, by chance, together on this planet, an amazing, beautiful biosphere emerged. Uh, oops. That's the answer. Oops. No no reason for it to be there. Could have been some other way. Could have never occurred. In fact, way, 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 actually astronomically more likely that it wouldn't occur. But let's ignore the fact that it's astronomically unlikely and that it is, in fact, here. Um, so that kind of answer is like, oops, the universe appeared. And wow. Against all logic, humans popped out. And then what are they supposed to do? Act on the basis of their misperception of the universe before them, which is to say, misunderstand evolution, misunderstand cosmology, and then assume absence of choice, absence of free will, zero-sum games, um, competitive nature. So I'm saying that we're slightly confused here. <laughs> At the end of late capitalism, um, and with the state of the human sciences um, and the humanities being such that we've given up on trying to weave a meta narrative or meta story about the nature of the human, uh, this is another reason why the schools need to be dissolved and something else needs to emerge. Because to do education right, you need a really good answer to the question: What is the human? Because you need to tell young children about the most basic kind of quote facts of life and what they mean and the harder that gets to do (laughs) and the more distracted parents are and teachers are and the more they're confused about what is actually the case about the most basic things that go on in their lives uh then the harder it is to secure the needed intergenerational transmission to secure legitimacy meaning capacity identity
0: and you've also uh said that we've sort of too narrow of a concept of what of what nature uh, is, is that? You know, you know, humans are sort of a natural part of you know within ecosystems, but ecosystems are also within humans, so or consists of humans, and so we, I think, we struggle sometimes. With, you know, is it is science and technology natural? Is it unnatural? You know, how do we? We always say, oh, it's not natural, as though that's a bad. You think, but it's sometimes hard to determine what is or what isn't.
1: Well, and that's kind of what I'm saying is that the we misunderstand human nature because we misunderstand nature. And we're not taking seriously enough the improbability of the emergence of the human and the nature of certain evolutionary dynamics, which have been pointed out again by Charles Sanders Peirce and Kropotkin and others. And again, some work, Stuart Kaufman, Santa Fe Institute, there's, a, and there's an inkling that there's another way to tell the story. There's been a heterodox story told very radically by people like Sri Aurobindo and Tiliar Desjardins, and then more temporarily, Ken Wilber, Barbara Marx humbert my colleagues at the Center for Integral Wisdom, like Mark Gaffney, where they're saying essentially, no, the story that we got, the neo-Darwinian simplified story of evolution is actually very partial truth. And that if we look at the dynamics of evolution, we can actually understand the human in the context of a different evolutionary story, where... A phenomenon like love or meaning would be able to be understood, characterized, explained as not just epiphenomenal. And so the source text for me, and this is Charles Sanders Purse. And so we can get into the reemergence of a evolutionary pan semiotic, which means like fundamentally intelligence or consciousness based meta narrative about evolution. And uh, and what that would do would be a big history context in which to frame education again so that you can look and look and you can say, listen, we're one with rocks and plants and animals <laughs> and the deep time history of the cosmos. And it has moved through not a determined course, right, but not also a random chance course. And again, we're in deep waters here. And you can feel when you start to speak about these things, a certain allergy to these ideas in the scientific and modern mindset which is to say that just my saying this and critiquing darwinian evolution is enough to be dismissed there's a need for a simple explanation um, and for certain ideological truths to stay in place so it is hard to come with the heterodox evolutionary view and it is hard to change the
0: absence of a real conversation about the nature of the human. Before getting back to schooling, talk a little bit about love as as truth because you've spoken about that on on another, on another podcast. And I was curious to go go deeper that it's not just sort of yeah you read epiphenomena or something happening in someone's head or or sort of an illusion, but that there's some tr- truth to it um, or sort of a recent phenomenon talk, that it's you know, sort of, it's hu- very human. It's, talk a little bit about that. What do you think? Wish people better understood about love. Yeah, I mean, what I'm what
1: I was saying is not so much that it's a truth, is that it's real that it's possible to reconstruct a philosophical ontology of love, which is to say the most rigorous possible story about that. This is real as real as gravity, for example. Um, and that a molecular bond, a molecular bond is a very interesting form of attraction. And this is getting into the work I do at the center for integral wisdom of Gaffney. And when you're looking at the attraction at some atomic or chemical levels, um, we're looking at the emergence of organisms and let alone the behavior of organisms. You start to see these gradients of allurement and bonds that appear to be eventually constitutive of new physical bonds that begin as agency, choice, quote, randomness. So there's one way of reading it, and this is how Kropotkin read it, and this is how Peirce read it was that there's an unseen factor in evolution that actually sets the stage upon which natural selection plays out. And that unseen factor is something like movement towards greater complexity, movement towards greater consciousness, movement towards greater capacity and love. Uh, and the last ones get a little cheesy for the scientific mindset. And yet, in fact, reading Charles Sanders' purse, <laughs> it's hard to deny the agapistic, which is to say agape, or love-based dynamics that characterize complex emergent processes, where the many spontaneously become a new one. Similar to what happens in family groups or tribal groups or relationships, where a meta-subject is constituted through the aggregate agency and choice behavior, which is to say that we create something new when we are in love. And that it is not a fiction, but a potential ontological reality that holds some vectoring potential for human evolution. Which is to say, when we're thinking about a new civilization, we can't just think about the technical problems. We need to think about the problem space of love. What is there for us once we save the world? When we go home, for example, when we're looking one another in the eye at work. Um, and collaborating and so yeah it's a, it's a deep issue and seeing love as not distinctly human but in fact as a kind of force of nature um, is a idea that has deep roots in western esoterical traditions as well so i'm not kind of making this up and it's not particularly new age it's actually mostly the esoteric core <laughs> of christianity judaism and islam the kind of kind of uh, omni-agapistic or omni-love-based universal love, love supreme, as Coltrane would say. Uh,
0: uh, are you familiar with the work of Robert Wright's Non-Zero? You wrote it like 20 years ago. I think it's somewhat fringe. Totally. It reminded me of your line when you said, humanity and society becomes increasingly complex over time. And his uh, sort of thesis yeah you could sort of trace a line back to human history and, and that's that's the story of human history is it, you know increasing social complexity mm-hmm. and increasing non-zero-sum games uh where we're either win-win or lose-lose and his um implication uh, on that theory is basically we need to uh globalize effectively um or we will perish <laughs> or you know it will be uh, chaos i think he was probably a, a bit more market-driven or yeah like Globalism within the existing world order. I, th- I think, pro- rather than, hey, or, or I guess maybe your, resp- your where you differ from him is to say, hey, I maybe agree with we either need to work together or perish. But I think we're more along the lines of perish, given the status quo, uh, and not just Trump uh, status quo, but the entire status. You
1: know, no, I mean, in a sense, he's exactly correct, and he's not the only social theorist to see. The kind of dynamic of cultural evolution and sociological evolution is one of increasing complexity and increasing abstraction and a few other dynamics. The inside of complexity, social complexity, what it feels like to be inside of social complexity is to be in intimate relationships or close relationships. And so there's this phrase, and I can't remember the sort of it now, it's the unbearable intimacy of planetary catastrophe. Right. And so, and this is the issue that Robert Wright is he's correct. Um, and it's flat and crowded and hot, as another author said. And so, it's that sense that as we come together, inevitably, inevitably, <laughs> we will be globalized as a species or destroy ourselves. So, we have to grip that speciesization, planetization dynamic, which was built in again to the dynamic of evolution itself. Unless the Earth was a horizontal plane and we could all keep spreading out the fact that it's spherical means that if we succeed and we populate and we multiply and make merry, then we'll start bumping into one another. And we'll have to figure out how to all live together. So in that sense, it's inevitable and it vectors towards complexity and it vectors towards increasing intimacy and interconnection and actually interdependence, whether we know it or not, whether we see ourselves as autonomous and alienated, or in fact dependent upon the unseen labor of at this point massive global supply chains that include hundreds of thousands of people just to like have this conversation we're having. <laughs> so there are webs of intimacy and interconnection in the meta-modern global sphere that are totally unprecedented, which means there's unprecedented possibility for love. But we know misunderstood love is hate. So the unbearable intimacy of planetary catastrophe easily cascades into a desire to get out of The intimacy, which means to other, right? Which means to create a group that's not on the inside, that we're not intimate with, to create distance from. So that's kind of one of the, again, educational crisis issues, is that we are more densely closed in upon one another as a species than we've ever been urbanization, et cetera. So, so yeah, right, is correct. We need to figure out this planetization dynamic. And we're going to have to figure out planetization in the context of, right now, there being basically three worlds, like the West, China, and the digital. Uh, and there being many kind of key dynamics, including the ecosystem and economic structures that are in the catastrophic or key pre-catastrophic bifurcation chaos which means that the planetization will be kind of uh, all or bust. (laughs) Like you will either figure this out and lock Mm -hmm. in some higher level, or we will lock in a pretty gruesome lower level of stability Um, or just go out in a blaze of, of pure white light (laughs) of Mm -hmm. nuclear disaster. And uh, all of these are again, terrifying scientific and political and economic scenarios, but they boil down to, To education. (laughs) And again, it's not that it is true that I have this massive hammer. So everything looks like a nail, but at the same time, the human choice-making and sense-making meaning, making legitimacy, all of these things are tied into how the future plays out in the next 20 years.
0: But what do you mean when you use the word legitimacy?
1: So legitimacy, I, I mentioned it as one of the things under the umbrella of the educational crisis, characterizing the inside of what it feels like to be in this complex society. And uh, Habermas, again, he's one of my favorites, wrote a book, Legitimation Crisis, I think probably 1972, he saw it coming, where he said, hey, man, this whole welfare state thing and late capitalist forms of commodity production are getting to the point where people are going to stop buying into it. And so he was pointing at the hippies as the first example, like they just don't buy into the system. And in fact, you will want to get a standing army and get a bunch of capitalist workers and a, Vast government bureaucracy, and you won't be able to find competent people to do it because they have given up handing over legitimate authority, both epistemic and other, uh, to the powers, quote unquote, that be. And so, and this is again part of that complexity dynamic. The more complex the society gets, the more it kind of needs to do for its people, the less it can follow through on its plans. Remember, Habermas, again, dialectic of enlightenment. So he's seeing the welfare state emerges, solves a vast number of problems, (laughs) like a vast number of problems, but now creates a whole new set of problems, including the fact that it can't satisfy everyone um, for a variety of needs. Yeah, so the issue here is that it's the exhaustion of a particular way of of solving
0: social problems. The legitimacy, psychological sovereignty, a question our, our culture would ask, is uh, if these are the goals of our education system that we are? How do we measure success there? And I I'm excited to talk to you because that say, that's the wrong question, <laughs> or it, it's so, or it's an incomplete question. And you know, there's this conundrum individually, you know, collectively, where the most important things are unquantifiable in some right. sense, and yet we keep trying to better quantify. So there's the question: Do you try to uh, better quantify them, or do you acknowledge that you can't quantify? The quantify them is to you know, diminish them inherently and, but still find a way to prioritize them. Cause there's, the, there's this, uh, you know, term in startup world, actually, you know, measure what matters. Um, or like, if you don't measure it, you won't prioritize it. Right. And of course, what matters can't be measured. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a conundrum. Yeah, totally. No, it's, it's, a, conundrum? it's a, it's a great question. And you know, I, what I think
1: one of the more interesting chapters in the second book, the education in a time between worlds is this one on the measurement crisis. And, Again, measurement is this thing that has been encroaching and growing into the life world for most of this recent arc of civilizational expansion. So what that looks like is the measurement of whole realms of human behavior and action and understanding that were, in some cases, less than 100 years ago, not measured at all. And I use this example a lot because it's controversial, but which is that chronological age, um, was in the United States only reliably available in people's minds. Like most people had no idea what their chronological age was before the end of the second, before the end of the Civil War. So it was actually the need to administer Civil War pensions that put in place the social security and administrative apparatuses that required, by bureaucracy law, that you know your exact chronological age. Before that, there were very few, if any institutional structures that required you to know your precise quantitative chronological age so people knew roughly who was older and younger and you were marked by certain historical events and some people who had certain forms of literacy were able to keep notes so that you could get an exact age if you wanted it but there wasn't a need to track human life that way similar with the weighing of humans and measuring of humans of all kinds Uh, If you look at medieval Europe, it was actually kind of an evil thing to do to measure somebody. Uh, You know, weights and measures are, in antiquity, the most contested ethical technologies. They're the equivalent of like the most refined metallurgy and the most refined physics to make these scales. And they dominate the practices of the marketplace and decide who gets rich and who gets poor. So when you look at the Bible and you even look at Babylonian texts and ancient constitutions, you see this obsession with justice around measurements and applications of measures and the kind of sacredness of the just measure. And so what that meant was that when you start to look, when medical science in particular started to look at the human and try to measure the human, there was this fear of a kind of witchcraft um, that would occur. And so there were some doctors who would come and they would just measure you, take your temperature and weigh you. And that was all they did. And they thought that that was enough. <laughs> and I'm just pointing this out because we take, so, we take a reliable, ubiquitous measurement infrastructure for granted. That you can go out and everyone knows roughly what a foot is in the United States. Um, that the United States is not metric is pretty much widely known. <laughs> that you go to the gas station, you pump a gallon of gas, that you trust it's a gallon. That you go to the grocery store and take things off the shelf and that you trust that those weights are there, even if it's coming from another country. So for the past about 200 years, we've been building behind the scenes a massive global measurement and standards infrastructure that is actually, for lack of anything else, a kind of default global governance system. And one of the main characters in that is the Uh, international standards organizations, which assure that when you go to another country, your credit card will fit through the slot (laughs) and assures when something is made in China and shipped to the United States, it will be the right size to fit in the cargo container. And then it will be the right thing to plug in your electrical outlet. And then all of the electrical standards and all of the industrial design standards, these things are codified at a planetary level. And we have tons of agreement and perfect efficiency there. When we like to tell a story that we can't accomplish anything on a planetary level, but we're actually doing it all the time to the extent that uh, I don't even think twice about going anywhere in the United States or anywhere basically probably in the world and worrying about electrical compatibility or digital um, getting on the grid or credit cards and things of that nature Um, because there's such a seamless measurement infrastructure and soon that measurement infrastructure is going to be Networked and become this kind of uh, internet of things, um, and so I call this a planetary scale meta measurement infrastructure, basically, um, which will be tracking almost everything with great precision. So, if the dictum of measure everything that matters and measure everything that moves has been part of modernity, then we've we've really played that out. And to the extent in schools and medical practice that measurements seem to actually be so much a part of what we're doing that we don't see the object that we're working with anymore. We just see the measure. So there's a fallacy of misplaced concreteness, as Whitehead would say, where we focus on the measure and the relation between the object and the measure and then kind of forget that there's this whole complicated object there and that the measure is only one dimension. So yeah, the hypertrophying of... Linear forms of measurements and single numerical forms of quantification. And these types of things are part of the story I tell in this chapter um, and part of the story of modernity, part of the story of modern schooling. IQ, perhaps, being the greatest example where we like to take the incredible complexity of the human mind and capacity system and reduce it to a single number. And so I'm not saying it's not right. I'm saying, it's a single number guys. (laughs) Like what would you want? How would you understand things by getting a single number about them? No, that's how you usually manipulate things for bureaucratic purposes. Um, So anyway, that's a longer conversation. So I'm saying there's a, there's a paucity of, and there's a paucity of understanding in the interest of explanation through hyper quantification. And most of that's because we want to control as opposed to understand.
0: That's really interesting. And you know, control controls is, is one. Or you could say another verb is is coordinate. Um, and I guess it, it is this simple sort of uh, your framework. Hey, we need to we need to do both. Basically, we need to have better measurements, but also recognize the limitations of measurements. So, in the IQ example, it's hey, maybe we should also measure EQ and physical awareness or, or you know, some other number of, of of things. But then also, you know, recognize that hey, we can't you know make decisions solely on on these numbers or Or is that not really what you have in mind?
1: I think what I'm saying is that we need to, again, raise the level of conversation we're having about the measurement infrastructures that we're implicated in. So it's not really a question of more or less measures. It's about how are we talking about these measures and how are we using them? So for example, measurement error, let's talk about measurement error, very hugely important issue in metrology, which is the study of measures and Any good person developing a measure is going to know the measurement error on their instrument, and all instruments have a certain amount of measurement error. If you don't know the measurement error of your instrument, you actually don't know how good it is at measuring something. Again, back to Charles Sanders' purse and the logic of uh, error. What that means is that we need to be able to know on, for example, medical tests, standardized tests, for schooling, biometric indices we have on our smart watches and other things that claim to be measuring stuff, what's the measurement error, guys? Just ask, and we need to have a, an articulate discourse about the fact that we are measured in these ways. Another example would be the psychometric backends on Facebook and social media. This is a huge network of measurement infrastructures that are trying to get a sense of who I am, how to predict my behavior, characterizing me on various metrics. Again, we need transparency and to understand that's what's happening we need to think about measurement error in those cases. (laughs) And we also need to think about the fact that every instance of measurement is a power relationship. And this is another rabbit hole in the conversation about measurement is that those who control the measure and those who have the ability to make the measure, the legitimate measure as opposed to some other measure, uh, they're usually the ones who have the greatest amount of power, um, so it goes back to the idea of a foot being actually the length of the king's foot. The rulers make the rulers. <laughs> uh, and so what that means is that the, the capture of measures, especially in the digital space, which is to say that, that you're being measured and you don't know it, or that you're being measured and you can't actually have in our conversation and look at how the measurement tool works. So the occlusion of access to sophisticated vetting of measures that are used at you, to you, to determine you, to measure you, to make you bureaucratizable. That's a dynamic that needs to shift. And I think were it to shift, we would have fewer measures. (laughs) Because people people would say, hey, the reason you want to measure me (laughs) is because you're surveilling me. And you're trying to sell me something, or you're trying to regulate how I work, or you're trying to see if I'm promotable, uh, or fireable, or whatever. And again, this is, in the schools, a massive issue, like, People don't realize, especially because of the violence in schools recently, that the amount of surveillance apparatus that an average adolescent is entangled with in a normal kind of public high school in the United States is probably unprecedented in history, rivaling like high-end prisons, (laughs) Uh, including surveillance of, you know, laptop and, and, uh, you know, screen use uh, in school and at home if you're using a school computer there's a deep dynamic again of total measurement there's an ambition towards total measurement and total control Um, and the only way to combat that is to have a broader raising of the conversation about what the stakes are and how these things actually work Um, you know uh, so like for example you go on facebook and you take a personality assessment and it tells you your xyz personality type you have xyz iq Again, bare minimum, best practice. How likely is it that I'm actually one of these other ones? How likely is it that there's an error and I'm actually one or two higher, five or six lower, right? If you have a measurement instrument and you know how it works, then you know that there's measurement error and there's noise. So the fact that we never have those discussions and we take all measures as just correct, sometimes one-time measurements with lots of contextual variability, and it's dangerous and Weird to talk about this in the context of medical measurement, but it's true. You take one blood test. It gets in someone's hands. It goes in a van. It drives to a lab. It sits on a shelf. It goes into a centrifuge, does a bunch of other things, and somehow gives back to you one number. On the basis of that number, you get a diagnostic and some very intense medication or treatment. Very little discussion about what are the things that could have augmented that number, how much bandwidth around that number is constitutive of
0: measurement error
1: how does it actually work in the centrifuge <laughs> these kinds of things are not discussed and the lab is a black box and the number is uh basically legitimate um and the expensive medical assessment makes it so that it's very hard to do test retest reliability doing multiple tests doing time time uh, time cycle testing that would be needed to to assure uh, accuracy so, I think until we are able to raise again psychological sovereignty to be able to deal with the complexity of what measurement actually entails and not just take measurement as something given. Uh, so, educational crisis is part of the measurement crisis. Uh, until so such so time, we will be over measured and dominated by measure. And so, if you look at the Sesame credit court system that's rolling out in China, um, this is the worst possible. Um, dehumanizing outcome of a totally omniscient, totally omniscient measurement metastructure. Yeah. So, so yeah, we need to get a handle on how we're being measured, especially online. And uh, that's going to require these so-called psychometricians who are building these backends to come forward and actually talk about their psychological theorizing and the psychometric models that they use to build these profiles for advertising and and political
0: persuasion. And I assume that, um, you know, the control part is a big part, but just one of a few parts that are the problem here. Like, let's say, for example, the crypto utopia happened where something like the social credit score is not a government or it's not even a corporation, but it's decentralized groups of people on an opt-in basis. Because, you know, uh, let's say, let's took the control part uh, out of it as much and that you your sovereignty right. as to whether or not to participate. Right. Another version of the quantify the unquantifiable conundrum is the sort of uh, is um? Do you put markets in a situation that didn't have markets before it, and does that you know, the criticism there is that it sort of cheapens the relationship? An example here would be you know income share agreements uh, are now becoming popular in education. Things like Lambda School, and you know, maybe the teacher should have some some upside <laughs> in their student success. Would they care more? And is the my question to you is is that sort of you know of course the incentives change there uh, for better and for, or for and for worse, and so. Do you make better, do you try to internalize the externalities or do you say, hey, there shouldn't be a market relationship here? We should be motivated by, by something else. I mean, the theorizing in learning theory and
1: educational philosophy would suggest that the degree to which you turn educational relationships into market-based transactions is the degree to which you transform them into something other than educational. And it's not that certain kinds of learning and skill acquisition don't take place, but it is that the message that's being sent is a duplicitous one. You're saying two things at once, Um, you know, contrast that with, say, parenting, which is, I think, something that most people would say we should not replace with market dynamics. (laughs) That you should not be monitored in your parenting and then rewarded economically for improvements in parenting. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some people would like to do that. But I think most people would say, no, if you're as a kid and you're thinking, "Okay, my mommy's being nice to me is my mommy being nice to me because she's getting paid to be nice to me and someone's watching her and judging her on her job? Or is my mommy being nice to me because she loves me? Right. And so again, Habermas talked about the colonization of the life world by the system. And so there are places in human life where we coordinate our behavior and get along by virtue of reason, um, which is to say, by virtue of communication, communicative action, uh, mutual understanding, a kind of joint discussion in the moment about what's feasible, what's Right. Uh, Systemic mechanisms for social integration could, don't really care about whether there's mutual understanding. <laughs> uh, but you can really organize systems quite effectively through transactional and contract-based forms of bureaucratic kind of uh, short-circuiting of mutual understanding. I don't really care if you understand. <laughs> uh, you will you will do this. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is important to isolate as much as possible teacher-student relationships in general from transactional dynamics Um, so that uh, while it makes sense to sometimes, of course, pay tuition for schools or something of that nature, it's important that there is a clear relationship that is not transactional that's based upon another way of human bonding between teacher and student. Um, so for example, and this is happening a lot in college campuses now because of the nature of the student loan crisis. If the idea of student as consumer, student as customer, overrides the idea of student as learner, uh, then you're in a situation that's very complicated because customers are always right, right? <laughs> they have to be. I'm paying your salary. Uh, I'm going into massive debt, getting like the equivalent of a mortgage. And you're standing up there telling me something I don't agree with. That's crazy. You are going to invite a speaker here to talk at my school where I pay the money for the FIS Plan, and I don't agree with this speaker. That's crazy. The customer is always right. The student, on the other hand, as learner, is, wants to be proven wrong, right? Wants to be in an asymmetric relationship of knowledge and wisdom with someone who's a teacher who has their best interest in mind. And uh, yeah, so for as long as we have these kinds of transactional and especially debt-based educational relationships, then we undermine lots of possibilities for intergenerational transmission Um, and kind of give a certain spin on what schooling is that makes it difficult for real transformation to occur real, you know, you know, actual learning as opposed to diploma grabbing like minimal skill acquisition uh, zero sum game women winning.
0: do you have a view between uh, debt-based finance and equity-based finance, or is it just two, you know, similar but d- different mechanisms, but rem- of a bigger problem, you know, rem- I mean,
1: we'd have to get into the specifics of it, but I, I don't think the issue with the way the educational debt crisis is right now is actually that complicated. To me, it just looks like common sense that this was a bad idea, <laughs> like that we made a certain decision at a certain point in the history of the country
0: to run the higher educational system in this way. But you don't think equity-based finance for higher education would be, it wouldn't solve some of the root problems?
1: No. And I think like I've been saying, the root problems are actually making it so that solving the problems in schools is relevant. Like what we know of as schools and colleges, and even some of what the university functions are, are slowly transforming and changing into something much, much different. So I, I, in a sense, I'm, often end up having to take this stance when people are asking me like how to fix higher education or how to fix the public schools. I'm saying, "Eh, it's not really about fixing them. It's about finding a way to transition them into something that looks a lot different so that you would get, instead of a college with a room and board and all these complicated fizz plants and a whole bunch of other things, you'd get a decentralized educational hub network in an urban center that would be a kind of like reconstitution of Ivan illich's deschooling society vision where a vast time and skill sharing network emerges and a series of local community kind of spaces are created through government and entrepreneurial support and you get like pop-up classrooms um, and complex forms of self-organizing educational behavior at the collegiate level among adults of all ages and young people who can do college level work. Uh, so that instead of a lot of the overhead and dynamics of the bureaucracy of education, we actually admit that with the Internet <laughs> and with a few other things, it's possible to totally get a college-level education without spending $70,000. Um, what you're missing is social life and teacherly authority, embodied teacherly authority and classroom dynamics. But those can be easily be created, especially if there's some minimal support for that kind of educational hub network structure. So in a sense, I'm saying, I think these questions of whether the kid should take out a loan or whether he should finance college some other way are kind of like red herrings. That's That's kind of like saying, how do we pay for the dinner on the Titanic? Should we use our credit card or should we, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying, no, we need to think about getting office and into a different kind of educational vehicle
0: ultimately. But I'm I'm, I'm curious. So some people might listen and say, "You're, you're, you're absolutely right, Zach. What we need is, you know, market-driven decentralized uh education so the examples you gave you know people teaching each other stuff it's like yeah they're like skillshare around the companies that you know, facilitate these networks via markets but are you also saying hey that that's also the titanic in a different way and maybe markets are a temporary solution because you know adam smith talked about you know, self-interest or the invisible hand but in the future we will you know we will not need to be organized by self-interest we will be organized by other interests and so we will have something that looks totally different than markets or, or what is the role of markets in? Organizing I mean, it it depends what you, what you mean by market. I mean, you know, market conditions are actually extremely hard to
1: actually create <laughs> because it requires informational symmetry. And if you look at the history of what has been called capitalism, you certainly shouldn't confuse it with anything like market. <laughs> capitalism has not involved markets with informational symmetry and, When you look at markets with informational symmetry and you play a little bit with what we might characterize as currency, then I can imagine a self-organizing educational dynamic that looks a little bit like a market with perfect informational asymmetry and several different forms of currency. So removing the educational network from money as we know it and creating several different forms of education-related currency are part of what needs to take place. And again, so it's not about, it's not about less measurement. It's about a very careful way of understanding what we measure and how we measure it so that we don't measure quote educational units in dollars. <laughs> uh, Cause then your skill sharing thing becomes a way for somebody to get rich or some company to get rich. When instead it needs to be a way for
0: everyone to get smarter together collaboratively. Well, I'm, I'm pretty fascinated. Can you, can you go deeper on the importance of informational asymmetry or, or what that could even look like? Is that, is that possible? What, what would that look like? then maybe the What are some of the different currencies that, that you have in mind? I mean, again, this is not my field. I'm a kind of expert generalist, but uh,
1: so there are certainly people who understand the nature of currency dynamics better than I do. But there's a simple story where you, uh, markets maybe did exist at some point, right? Where you're in a small town and everything you basically the people need in a town is basically there, and maybe there's one guy who goes and gets stuff that needs to be come from far away, but Fred has the apples and Bill has the pigs and this guy runs the whatever. And because you know everyone in this community, you know how he raises his pigs, you know what he would have had to basically buy to feed the pigs. So there's a sense that we all share in this community about the same amount of knowledge about the key commodities and stuffs that would appear in the market. Um, Things get very different when you get market dynamics where There's a huge amount of asymmetry between the commodity producer and the consumer to the extent that they do billions of dollars of research to figure out how you make decisions and what you want. And they do billions of dollars of research to occlude information about the nature of their commodity supply chains that are planetary and global and actually kind of like hyper objects that your phone, uh, total transparency into the nature of how your phone was created would be what is required for perfect informational symmetry. You need to know as much about your phone as Apple does. Sounds insane. That's an insane idea. Proprietary knowledge. (laughs) So you see that there's a way in which the very mechanisms that we characterize as capitalism have long been opposed to the pure market-based dynamics. Um, And that pure market-based dynamics are hard to create because of natural information asymmetries and human capacity which is to say, it would be hard for me to understand as much about my phone as Apple because <laughs> I'm not a computer scientist, right? So it's, it's, not, it's not a simple problem to, to think about how to have an informational ecosystem in which we could have properly functioning material economies and educational systems and other things. Again, most of what we've known, especially since uh, the end of World War II, has been nothing like the market. Um, right. And when we and talk about know, educational markets and making educational places into a market, uh, you're not getting <laughs> a market. Um, you're getting a, this thing that has been created in which some people can make a ton of money precisely through asymmetric information, proprietary knowledge, et cetera. Um, and uh, the fact that everyone needs in a state mandated to consume education means that it's a captive marketplace, which is also not a marketplace. Marketplaces you're free to leave or enter Um, if your state with the force of law requires you to buy something it's pretty much by definition not a market Um, so yeah there's a little bit of kind of like illusion going on there Um, and, uh, and that's because if we really want markets then we need to fix the educational system because people need to be smart enough to be empowered market actors if you want to maintain informational
0: asymmetry then you actually might try to build an educational system that would make people stupid I'm not, can you help me better understand or why informational symmetry is so important only because, you know, the, the amount of expertise in the world is bigger than can fit in one person, obviously. And if we right. think of ourselves as as a collective, pe- different people need to specialize in, in different things. Right. So wh- why is it important that we all and, you know, people, you know, uh, maybe this would be controversial, but make money if other people are buying with, you know, or find value. Not always, <laughs> maybe not often, but why is it important that there's informational symmetry when expertise is bigger than can be in any one person? So the kind of information that an expert has, which is hard for me to
1: access simply by virtue of my own capacity, is a different kind of asymmetric information situation. That's a situation that I call a situation of potential teacherly authority. So in a good situation, the expert should be able to explain to you what's going on. If you were to take enough time and do the work, you could come up to that level of expertise. So there's a kind of teacherly authority in play when you're looking at levels of expertise. The asymmetric information that characterizes the kind of hyper agents in the capitalist world system, these large corporations in particular, it's totally different <laughs> because it's it's literally information about how to manipulate you through advertising and it's information uh, that is systematically kept out of any kind of teacherly that they don't want to teach you. They actually have legal things in place to stop you from trying to learn. <laughs> uh, and so it's when expertise gets tied into those structures that excluded or occluded from its potential as a for- source of teacherly authority that the problem is. And so again, back to the medical system, it's like, we want to be able to understand for ourselves what's going on with our bodies, but we're often told that we shouldn't bother because the doctors are the experts. Um, as an educator, it's hard to hear that because I, I do think that, uh, people can learn for their whole lives about all kinds of complicated things. So yeah, so this is again, part of that psychological sovereignty conversation hinges upon this issue of expertise and the conflict between expertise and democracy became very clear after World War II. And it was one of the things that kind of emerged was this rhetoric of meritocracy, which is to say that, well, it can't just simply be (laughs) democratic mechanisms. There are these gradients of expertise and capacity. So, so yeah, so that's, again, basic issues in governance. How do we bring together some kind of egalitarian notions with some kind of like representational democracy notions with some kind of meritocratic motion notions? All three of those are obviously essential
0: in different contexts. One of those alone is a nightmare. (laughs) So I, uh, I really want to push my own thinking on income share agreements because I've, I've thought about them a lot from a business perspective and I'm 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 an investor in, in companies, but not from a you know, sort of multifaceted perspective as we're discussing them here. So, w- one um, example I give up some, give sometimes is, so I've invested in a, in some companies, very small uh, amounts, in ways that are not economic or not material for me at all, and yet for some reason I have a sort of symbolic. Maybe maybe I'm an outlier here, but I have symbolic bonding towards them. Uh, where the example I give is, hey, if they were uh, in town and wanted needed a place to stay, I would I would always offer it even if their company fails 10 years from now, like I'm, I'm always bonded to this person in a similar way that, you know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily for a person on, on the street, but if you told me that person on the street was my fifth cousin, I would say, oh yeah, you know, you, you stay over. And, and what bonds me to my fifth cousin is sort of this, this story I tell myself that I've, we've sort of, I don't know if it's offensive or controversial words, but like genetic equity in each other. We, we are right. genetically bonded or, or, or even culturally bonded for, for some reason that I have to get, give them my couch and I was wondering if income share agreements are sort of a way to extend this sort of perceived equity that we uh, have, in, and, and not literal, because it's so symbolic in each other, that it could get us a way to care more about people if I'm bonded to you in some way that uh, we share, our, our fates are shared. Basically, can you make legible um, the intertwining of our collective fates? That's a question I have for you. And then also going back to the, the parent example, it's, uh, you know, I, I see the sort of double bind or a teacher example. I see the double bind of, Hey, how do I know that you're not just trying to make money off me, but I'm, I'm curious even with, without that, how, you know, for example, uh, how do I know that you don't love me for your own sake, but not for the joy that you get out of loving me? You know, how do you know that it's not super selfish of you to want me <laughs> to do well, because then, you know, that you get status benefits or you get other, other benefit Like, I'm, I'm curious, if you took out the control part. If you took out the, it's government mandated or it's, Corporate mandate and it's all decentralized and crypto utopia happens. Is there still something inherently cheapening when you when you add a market element? It, totally. I mean, and this is the again measurement. Like I
1: was trying to allude to with the kind of medieval example that don't measure me. Like the intuitive sense as measures and modernity started coming, we're standardizing measures, doctors of all these measures. The intuitive like folk psychological sense was like mm, don't measure me. <laughs> That's like some trick. Like you're playing some trick or some hocus pocus. Uh, a curse like your curse like putting a curse on me there's a way to think about like what are the limits of commodification and that's really what we're talking about we're talking about the turning of things that were not commodities into commodities which means translating them into something that's monetizable which means quantifiable and so i have this whole section in my book and it's actually in both books on the education commodity proposition and so this is the basic idea that how do we understand education is it as a quantifiable unit that has some equivalence with some number of dollars. Like, so if I pay this much money for an educational experience, I should have this many clicks up on the education measure, right? Which would be maybe future earning potential or something. So we're boiling the educational understanding and experience down to the quantifiable and then monetizable unit is the same thing that happens with any commodity process and it also happens with human labor this is called by economists the labor commodity proposition where you boil all of the complexities and fleshiness and sweat and blood of labor down to a single number um, and then you just negotiate that number on the market like any other number and uh so there's you can see that our trust in numbers and the fetishization of numbers uh, has run wild to a certain extent so yes, while I do like the idea of kind of experimentation and alternative currencies um, and alternative measurement infrastructures for educational experience, I prefer those innovations to have a certain quality, and they this comes into my meta theory of measurement, which is in again the chapter in that book. So so yeah, it's a it's a it's a broader kind of deeper issue. You had two questions, and I'm trying to remember
0: what the but the second thing oh, the second one was the um, what you said about the teacher and the kid, how do I, or parent, how do I know you're not just trying to make more money? But there are other like, why, why don't we say right, that now? now uh, you're into Right, now you're right, totally. Yeah, now you're into the phenomenology of love,
1: right? Which is to say, what, how do you know anyone really loves you, right? And this, and this is one, well, then this is a very real human, Ben. What is the human? How do we know when love is there? And that comes down to trust, and if we trust numbers so much. That we forget how to have a totally unmediated, totally non-contractual, totally non-quantifiable relationship and dynamic that is held in a trust relationship and love. And uh, that's the pure kind of resilience of the life world. And that's the kind of gift that humans give one another is the luxury of love and trust among people who are <laughs> lovable and trustworthy. <laughs> uh, and so now, of course, there's so much breakdown in that, that we want to put in institutional structures that will assure civil behavior and assure following contracts, even if we retreat to pure isolation, even if we retreat to pure autonomy and alienation. Um, but that's it's impossible. <laughs> so anyway, in, in the realm of education in particular, it's that phenomenology of love that's in play, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Like do the student and the teacher both love the subject so much and care about the better argument so much that there's basically no ego, right? Do the student and the teacher respect each other so much that there can be a sincere deference to higher capacity, which is to say the student sincerely says, Hey, I'm not a consumer paying your salary professor. You're actually smarter. Let me learn from you. (laughs) And similarly, the the teacher respecting the student, saying I'm going to teach you in a particular way (laughs) that brings you into sovereignty and would allow you to be a teacher like myself where I become obsolete as opposed to state-based and medical-based teacherly authority that refuses to allow sovereignty, that wants to keep the expert uh, in place uh, above. So yeah, so there's these dynamics that I think have... Existed in fits and starts in various places in educational systems, historically speaking. So, if you look at like the guild systems or the mystery school systems, you start to get structures of education that hold in place dynamics of teacherly authority through mechanisms that are not in any way transactional or based upon, you know, the legitimacy of the nation state or some fiction about the economy or something like that, <laughs> that they're that grounded. They're in the, they're grounded in the life world and in what I call like the metaphysics of the, the given,
0: basically. This does all extend back to the, the nature of a human. I, I've heard this theory of basically, basically the punchline of theory is get your tribes out of my markets or tribal thinking out of my markets and your market thinking out of my tribes. And basically the punchline is um, we need to coordinate in, gl- in global, uh, global ways or, uh, or take that as a given. And one theory says that we can uh, on a micro level, we're wired to, to, you know, be able to love, you know, 150 people or whatever it is, a, a small amount of people. And then what markets help do is, you know, make you act with uh, or act, uh, coordinate among you know millions of people or, or for people you will never meet or, or for people who you might have a, you know, you might not naturally like. And so do, uh, I guess you'd probably quibble with that, you know, presumption in the beginning of, Hey, love is limited or that. Well, uh, back to the, you know, we had the developmental models, the, the Jungian
1: individuality, the Maslavian self-actualization, the post-conventional, Kohlbergian sense, the cosmocentric, Wilberian sense of a height of maturity in which, yes, love is not limited. And the idea that the market is universal in the way religion is universal, thats part of that mythology that began with the birth of the capitalist world system with Adam Smith. And it's not it's not actually wrong. You remember I said that we're networked behind the scenes in this massive constellation of intimacy. That the products that are made, once we look through the fetishism, the, the commodity fetishism to the actual commodity chain that produced it, we realize it's all this blood, sweat, and tears from all over the globe. And so, yes, we're connected to all these people through the market in a vast chain of intimate relationships. But often what we are doing is externalizing <laughs> damages through the market. And that's why we're occluded from seeing the full network of intimacy that we're actually in every time we step into a store or buy something online so you're right to see the kind of like logic of the market and capitalism moving all humans into this planetization kind of these global supply chains and as i mentioned the international standards organizations that basically are defunct they're like a de facto global governance system interconnecting all the ships and cargo Containers and you know fiber optic cables and the internet like all of that stuff is coordinated by virtue of capitalism. <laughs> and it's interesting. Like I've read enough Marx to have respect for you know non-vulgar uh, Marxism. And there was always this sense amongst, including among Marx himself, was like, whoa, 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 you get way too soon, guys. Like not Russia now, not probably not even England now. Like We need to wait until the entire planetary capitalist you know, metastructure has been constructed and we're con- the means of production have brought us to a state of total planetary closure, the unbearable intimacy of planetary catastrophe. And it's only at that point that we can think of flipping those same universal mechanisms in the service of something like love as opposed to in the service of something like endless accumulation of fictitious value. Um, and hoarding of it by a small number of people. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a radical potential transformation on the horizon, which wouldn't be a regression back below the planetary infrastructures, but actually a repurposing of the radical intimacy of this capitalist world system. And of course, the transitional infrastructures will be, you know, dynamic and some things will have to be entirely taken apart. But I'm suggesting, for example, the schools. Like we use the existing school buildings, we just repurpose them <laughs> and make them some combination of like community center, daycare, library, computer center, co-working space, where the time-sharing and skill-sharing pop-up classroom facilitating software resides, and uh, there are places where people can come and and so thinking like that, how do we? repurpose existing infrastructures that are right now encasing us in a kind of not great intimacy an intimacy that we don't really want to look at. <laughs> and how can we, how can we get it to be so that we want to look at where our things come from and we want to look at what our situation is um, vis-a-vis the rest of the world with like the global South until such time. Well, again, the legitimacy crisis, the capability crisis, the identity crisis will continue to cascade because we can't really look at what's, what's happening. And we know we're in this intimate enclosure with the rest of humans on this spaceship Earth. <laughs> and we're getting really claustrophobic and freaked out. <laughs> uh, you know, I know thousands of people created this phone and I will never meet them. And I have no idea like where the, where the rare, earth material, like rare earth materials and all like, well, who knows? And I actually don't even want to think about it. It's like, like I said, it's like a meta-modern hyper (laughs) object, And so that kind of stuff, we need to think about a way, what would it look like if we had really sovereign psychological individuals and how would they relate to these these vast infrastructures that we've been bequeathed by by
0: the history of the capitalist world system? It's a a challenge. And so if I am saying something along the lines of, hey, I'm trying to make legible for my own life or help people for others if they want to, the intertwining of our faiths so that we have internal context, but also social context to, to care about each other in a non-weird way. And, you know, family is one one way that we have in society, but that's limited. And, and you know, having symbolic equity in each other could be another way. Do you say, hey, you know, legibility is a fraught game. Don't, don't do it at all. Or, you know, maybe markets should be one of uh, other, you know, uh, or equity should be, symbolic equity should be one of other ways. Or, hey, actually... Love is a better way. We used to have it in you know different societies, and we can get back to it once we you know reap the rewards of this market-based system. Or what do you say? What do you say? Well,
1: well, legibility is different than measurement, you know.
0: And uh,
1: the idea that we make our bonds legible is actually a beautiful idea, and it's as simple as words. Words are legible. Speaking—that's exactly how you create life-world bonds. It's through speech. It's not through the intermediary of the media of power or money. It's through the intermediary of sounds and speech or written word. So I think we can make our entwined fates legible simply through the power of proper language. Unfortunately, right now, language is failing us. As I was saying, like there's been this retreat, this kind of eddy of postmodernism we're kind of stuck and spinning in where we're giving up on reason. Every perspective is as good as everyone else. So that means I put forward my perspective with power. Uh, for as long as that holds, then it becomes hard to trust the power of language to secure our bonds of love and intertwinement. Uh, and so we feel like we need to get legal contracts or currency exchange metrics or other things to show that we're actually entwined. If we trusted words and we're, had enough language from the soul. So again, psychology, right? I'm a psychologist. Psycho. Psyche. Soul. Logos means language or speech or logic. So it's like, what is the language we have to make legible our soul, especially the world soul, the anima mundi? And so I love this framing of making legible. I would just say, let's not push it into making measurable because those are two very different things. Um, you know, so for example, when the caveman dipped his hand in some kind of paint and put his whole palm print. On the cave, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago he was making himself legible, and we could measure the size of the hand and, or whatever and try to compare it genetically and try to make that into this abstract you know abstract ob- objective kind of like but in fact, it was a more significant symbol than that, and that 's what non measurable but still legible language and culture allow for and it's it 's not that there 's like some like woo-woo mystical zone where we're like communing with others without words. And it's like, it's not really that it's, it's really, we're always in our language and our culture um, and our bodies. Uh, And it's the measures that get us out of that and forget like, Oh no, when I was sitting with him, I totally trusted him. Absolutely. He would have had to be a genius sociopath to like act that way. (laughs) And I don't think he's smart enough. So I totally trust him. And it's like that there is a certain, um, trust you can have in a well-socialized human mind body. And so the degree to the degree to which our educational environments are healthy is the degree to which
0: we start to trust ourselves and then trust one another's. When you say different educational currencies, do you mean something remotely close to like, you know, right now, I guess IQ is maybe a currency or measurement, like a currency around how to measure sovereignty or, 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 or what types of currencies do you mean? And I guess what I'm trying to get at is if we don't have, some measurements of currencies. I'm not sure what the right word is. How do we make sure that we prioritize them? I, I assume that's less our right. part. But then the second thing is, how do we even know that we're doing a, a a good job there? Right. Well, so I'm saying, like, imagine
1: you get credits for teaching and you get credits for learning, and these credits cannot be redeemed for dollars or food or anything like that. They can only be redeemed for more teaching opportunities or more learning opportunities, right? (laughs) And so the idea would be that if you're a successful teacher, um, then you get credits to learn. Or if you're a successful learner, you get credits to either do more learning or to start teaching. And so you can imagine ways of assessing whether a teacher has been successful or a student has learned that don't require (laughs) quantification. That's the thing. It's very easy to think about even assessment, Without thinking about measurement, those are not redundant. You know, assessment is a way to make learning legible. does not necessarily need to be quantifiable. Um, There's lots of uh, even very scientific qualitative methods uh, for looking at behavior and looking at speech and other things to show how there's been growth. There's been aggregation of more conceptual. The performance of understanding is richer than it was previously. So we can have rich languages of evaluation Without
0: reducing all the language of evaluation to quantitative measurement, um, is the problem there? I guess the more the standardized element of it, then, or because it these-
1: but it's okay to not be standardized as long as there's a certain amount of trust in the considered judgment of the people who's doing the assessing. Uh, which is to say, one of the things we've done with moving assessment infrastructures out into all realms of education is disempower the kind of professionalism of teachers. We've said, no, nah, we don't really trust you to like <laughs> make a considered complex judgment about whether that kid is fit for college. We're going to put that kid in like a scientific environment, like a hyper surveilled situation. And I charge him 600 bucks and do a standardized test. And then that will show us whether he's ready for college. Whereas a teacher who'd spent, let's say, two years with a kid in high school and advised him could probably tell you pretty damn well. <laughs> but we don't trust the teacher. And so again, the trust in numbers, which is the name of a book by Theodore Porter, it's a wonderful book, Trust in Numbers, uh supersedes um other forms of more complex trust that we would have to place in teachers. So yeah, so that's again, I think we've moved into the quantification of educational performance mostly for bureaucratic reasons, not even for scientific reasons. You know, most of the standardized tests don't yield good science. They yield high level statistical averages of huge groups. It's not learning science. Um, It's like demographics or something. And so you're looking at the quantification for ease of certain types of bureaucratic decision making, as opposed to quantification for ease of teaching or learning. (laughs) Uh, Assessments that are rich and descriptive and place a student on a particular sequence of concepts and shows them the next steps forward, that kind of assessment useful for teaching and learning can also be repurposed for the kind of uh, gradations of access and value that would be needed, like a kind of currency. Um, So, yeah. And again, I, to call it currency, may be unnecessary. It may just be that there's a certain way
0: that we keep track of learning and teaching in the skill network. And you'd expand this to things like healthcare and and assessment without quantification. It's very, I mean, it's, it's usually, I have no idea like quite what to
1: do, but, but yes, we need to think about assessment outside of quantification and in healthcare, we need to think about forms of assessment outside of even physiological assessment, which is to say the interiority of the healthcare, what does it feel like to be a patient, you know, being on the receiving end of a ton of measures and a ton of bureaucratic apparatuses, It can be very alienating during a time when people need to actually be cared for quite well. So understanding the insides, the consciousness factor, health in the healthcare system would reveal a lot about the kind of healthcare system we should be building. (laughs) Because right now we don't really know. We know like technically, scientifically, we'll do anything to prolong life. (laughs) But it's unclear, again, because we don't know what the human is, how to treat people. How do we speak about death? is it the case that death is always preferable to life? Uh, is it the case that the doctors should not think about religious topics or discuss the state of the patient's like soul or psyche? So it used to be that medical profession and religious profession were quite close. <laughs> so again, I'm saying time between worlds. When you think about institutional change, you need to think quite drastically um, and that there will be transitional fixes and patches on the current system. But at the end of the day, uh, we're looking at a system that's fundamentally unsustainable down to its axioms. And so that, uh, yeah, we need to reconfigure. Um, and I think most carefully about education, so I wouldn't really care to speculate more on healthcare. But I've seen enough of what goes on in there to know that there are similar issues that have to do with hypermeasurement um hyper bureaucratization uh hyper like matrix of legal and financial apparatuses layered across the potentially human to human relationship and uh regardless of the situation with medical measurement that i mentioned before which is a whole other issue that has to do with medical epistemology and medical ontology there's just this issue of how do we treat people what does it feel like to be in the medical system answer from the preliminary early stuff that they do, some healthcare providers do kind of surveys and stuff, uh, not good is <laughs> the answer. Um, and it's not just that it's expensive, although that is some of it. And same with education. When you ask kids, what does it feel like to be in school? What does it feel like to be in college? Um, very few say that they like it. And most say it's boring. There was a huge international study where they gave kids this mm-hmm. sentence stem school is blank. <laughs> and something like 70 or 80% was just answered boring. Right. But for others, it's unsafe. School feels unsafe, either because of the state of their capacity or the actual community that they're in school is unsafe. And then for others, it's, uh, you know, school is mostly beside the point. It's like, it's nice because you make friends there. And so there's a, there's a way of yeah thinking about the exhaustion of these institutions and what it would look like to revive them in a
0: substantive way that's mostly what i'm kind of worried about my my guest today has been zach stein zach this has been a fantastic and wide-ranging interview thank you so much for for joining the podcast and for introducing me and and our audience to to, to some of these deep ideas and allowing us to go deeper in the ones we're familiar thank you it's been a blast